Jamhuri Day is the day Kenya became a republic, meaning that its fate could from December 12, 1963, be determined by its citizens and not the Queen of England. Before that, Kenya was a colony, which meant that every decision, big and small, about how we lived was made by the British. Everything we take for granted, the fact that you and I can live where we are right now and go somewhere else on a whim, that you can live and work where we want, that you can go to any restaurant and own anything that you can afford, those were not options available to us. In the 1940s, if you had to leave your home to another place, you needed written permission by the Mzungu, who owned the land that you were in, and the approval of the government. You had to have a book called a passbook, which if it was stamped by the colonial government, gave you a pass to go from this place to that place on this day at this time. Otherwise, you would be taken to jail and if a white man shot you and killed you for being where you were not allowed to be, well, that was okay. Although, if he were to kill you for no reason at all, he would just be told to avoid killing the blacks, to keep things stable and to maintain the workforce. No punishment at all would be given to him. You, a black person, had no rights at all, except those that they kindly let you have. There were many places that you could not have dreamed of going, many doors that were simply not open to you because they said whites only. One time in the 1940s, Hussein Wamunini needed a loo really badly. He used to drive a rickshaw, essentially a mkokoteni or a handcart with a seat on it, which was the Uber of those days. A strapping young man then, Hussein would grab the handlebar of the rickshaw and literally run across town with his passenger. What would you do if you did that work or any work and needed a toilet? Well, today you'd just go to the nearest toilet door, open it, run in and do your business, correct? In the 1950s, it wasn't that easy. I was told this story in 2006 when Zewan Munini was in his late 90s. He was blind at the time and he was very sharp-witted and very funny. This narration is done by me and the accent is definitely not accurate. I hope you enjoy it and I wish you a happy Jamhuri Day. Welcome to Living Memories, the podcast by Alcags. These are a collection of stories told to me by Kenyans who lived in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Once a week, we release a true story about an ordinary person who lived in the extraordinary times of our history. We hope it inspires you to reach out to a mze or a mama in your family and community and listen to their stories, and we hope that you write those stories down. If you do, and you want us to read them here, send me an email on livingmemories at alcags.me. Have you ever needed that toilet so badly that the meaning of life quite literally meant going to the loo and sitting or squatting in that receptacle and listening with complete
complete satisfaction to the rumble of thunder in your bowels? My most pronounced memory of the colonial days involved such a time. I am about 97 years old and thank God I am still lucid. These blind eyes of mine can see those days most clearly behind their dark curtain. I was in Nairobi. I was a rickshaw runner between um, 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 the Norfolk Hotel and the railway station. On that particular day in the 1940s, there was a frenzied activity all over town because a whole bunch of important dignitaries was coming. I had made more than 20 trips to the railway station from Norfolk Hotel and it was still morning. It was a splendid day. At lunchtime, my friend Wamunini from Western Province, then a young man who eventually became the venerable Canon Reverend Wamunini, had brought some snacks that his wife had made so that we could share. We ate the food heartily and then settled in for the afternoon. Normally, in those days, Nairobi was a very slow place after lunch and before tea. That was when the white people had their siesta, so there wasn't too much work. At about four o'clock, the town roused itself and activity started again. I was working with a start, with the urgent need to go to the toilet. Just that moment, Corporal Frederick Marshall, a ruthless police reservist who used to be in the army, got into my rickshaw and told me to get to the railway station post haste. Now, Marshall was not the sort of man that you talked back to as it was said that he had killed many Africans on a whim. So I picked up my steering bar and I ran. Now a stomach that is filled with fermented gases does not need to be shaken up in the way that mine was. <laughs> and so by the time I was getting to the station, things were quite desperate. To make the situation worse, Copro Marshall did not go away immediately, but instead he stood next to my rickshaw, holding my money, which was a mere penny those days, talking to another white man for a while. It is important to mention 
that the social temperature of those days did not allow an African to interrupt a white man for any reason except perhaps to save the white man's life and even for that one could be punished in fact the situation was so bad that an african did his best not to move or attract any attention to himself so while my body temperature was increasing by the second the storm in my tummy was gathering with increasing intensity and the volcano was threatening to erupt with little bursts of air coming out of my behind fidgeting was out of the question for me what made it even more dangerous was that my mind was completely focused on the worsening conditions in my nether regions <laughs> anyway at length marshall finished his conversation and leisurely turned to me before he handed me my coveted coin and departed as i had by then been calling upon my ancestors to admonish him to do he stopped to ask me more questions had i seen his friend david banks i answered his many questions trying to keep my face relaxed and my voice unhurried and respectful as a good african should all the while becoming more aware that there was a looming crisis then he released me and turned his back entered the railways restaurant and with that release my personal crisis started to become undone There was no way I could run up to the road to find a bush. Looking frantically around, my eyes fell on a sign that said gentlemen and a small one underneath that said whites only. I didn't think or stop to consider the repercussions. I ran at the door I bumped into the African man who took care of that toilet you know cleaning it and that sort of thing and I quickly communicated with him that we will deal with everything else after I was finished because it was life and death I sat on that toilet and at that moment as you well know life made sense ah i rumbled and i tumbled for a few minutes until with like the toilet cleaner who became my great friend and by the way my brother in law started knocking frantically at the door and said i must must get out and i returned to the present 
I wrapped it up very quickly because the worst was over. And the plan was to sneak out quickly before anyone noticed. It was just my luck that as I came out of the little cubicle, the very scary Copro Frederick Marshall happened to be coming into the loo for similar agencies. For a moment, he stopped with shock and looked at me and I froze as well. Withaga claims every time he has told this story that at that very moment, he developed a crisis in his own tongue. Presently, the crisis in Marshall's stomach came to a head and he pushed me aside, slammed the door from which I had come. Me? Hey, I fled. I stayed away from the rickshaw rank and spent time in Ziwani hiding. After I was assured that Marshall was not looking for me, I ventured back to work. Alas, three days later, I was arrested by a number of policemen who took me to the PC's quarters. There I found Marshall, who claimed that I was assisting the Mau Mau for a long time and that he had caught me a few days before trying to put a bomb in the loo. <laughs> I think I was, if you think about it. <laughs> His story was that when I saw him come in, I fled. As he finished his incredulous story, Mudaga was brought in as my accomplice. For days after that, we endured almost endless beatings and many other forms of torture. We were then taken to the magistrate who in a record 15 minutes found us guilty, sentenced us to 13 years hard labor in prison. I spent six of those years in Moya prison and seven in Manyan. And that started a whole new chapter in my life.